Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father, we thank you for, once again, who you are and what you are to us. Thank you for this opportunity to break the bread of your Word with your people It's not a normal Bible study, but it's about the word that you inspired. And I just pray, Lord, that we'll become more equipped and more comfortable in just sharing your word. And of course, at the end of the day, to live out your word through the power of your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, I do pray for the gift of teaching and a fresh filling of your spirit. And I just pray that you will be glorified on this night, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So we are in a series, and so we've been doing apologetics since we ended 2 Samuel, which was the last uh, book of the Bible that, that I taught on Wednesday, and so we've been doing apologetic lessons. I know I've done some studies on Christianity versus the cults and so forth, and so um, some of you thought those were interesting, but I, I thought it would be easier, and I prayed about it, and it, and it seemed like it would be easier and more beneficial to focus on the Bible and Jesus. Who is Jesus and can we rely on, on the Bible? Is it, is it true? And we know the answer to that, but we want to be able to share that with other people with confidence, know that for ourselves and, and not be afraid of any uh, questions or challenges that may come up to us, that have come up to us, that maybe you've seen online on social media or maybe uh, people at work or at school, maybe they brought that certain things to your attention trying to trip you up to, to make it seem that God isn't real, that Jesus isn't the, holy, the, the only way and that uh, the, the, the word of God, um, which we consider the word of God, that you know, some people will say it's not true. It's just made up of fables and so forth. So people today are still saying these things. Believe it or not, there, there are even people who, who think that Jesus um, was not a historical person, that he really didn't live on this earth. And, and that's sad because even some skeptics will tell you that it is verified that Jesus was a real human. And of course, we know that he's more than a man, more than a human, because he is fully God, fully man. We covered that in one of our apologetic series um, all about Jesus. And so right now we're doing a two-part series, which we're on the second part of. Um, and this one is the reliability of the New Testament. And so this, since this is part two, that means that we've already, already covered part one, which was re- reliability of the Old Testament. And so... Uh, just so you know where we're going with this, after this study, we're going to have one more apologetic study and just to show the connection between Jesus and the, and the Bible, between Jesus and the Holy Scriptures. And so we're going to wrap that up, Lord willing, next week. And then once again, Seder, dinner, and then after that, we'll jump into the book of Genesis, Lord willing, and Pastor Jim on Sundays, Lord willing, will be soon getting into Revelation. And so that was the goal for us to start at those places at, the, at about the same time. And so as we go through um, this series here, or this final part of this series of Why Trust the Bible, now the goal is to become more knowledgeable about the Bible, to also mature in the faith, 
And then be equipped to help others, not to win arguments, but to help others, to remove roadblocks that stand in the way of people seeing Jesus clearly. And we also want to be equipped to um, be able to identify what's true and what's false. And so it's the purpose for this. And and believe it or not, there's people who've been going to church for a while who even read uh, many parts of the Bible And if people were to ask them a a simple question about what is a man, what is a woman, or or can these two people or whatever get married, and they would say, I don't know. The the answers are here. It's clear. Is Jesus the only way to salvation? Some people would say, I think so. But you're a Christian. You've been in the Bible. You've been going to church. And, And so this is a... You know, some of the reasons of of why we're getting into this. And so the first thing we're going to start with is the inspiration of the New Testament. And we start with a quote from Dr. Joseph Holden. He says, inspiration is the supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit who, through the different personalities and literary styles of the chosen human writers, invested the very words of the original 66 books of Holy Scripture alone and in their entirety as the very word of God without error in all that they teach, affirm, imply, or entail. And that includes matters of history and also matters of science. So there's a total of 66 books in the Bible. And we're focusing, of course, on the 27 in what we call the New Testament. And so there is a method of inspiration that we as Christians hold. Okay, biblical Christians hold this view of the inspiration of the scriptures. It is a holistic inspiration. And holistic inspiration means that, that, that inspiration is supernatural, it's verbal, it's plen- plenary, which means it's complete in every respect. And not only are the words inspired, but also the teachings, the doctrine that we find in the Holy Scriptures. And there is a process that we find in the Scriptures of inspiration because we know that the bible is the breathe out word of god and so what we see with inspiration is that god directed the writers so that what was written was what god intended to say and so they wrote the very words of god he breathed them out he breathed out the words they wrote it down and we see in 2 Peter 1.21 that, that, that these holy men of God, they yielded to God and they allowed themselves to be used by God. And so they allowed themselves, in other words, to be carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so what we see in these scriptures did not come from man. It, it did not originate from man, but from God. And they just were vessels that God used to write down his holy word. And so we see that this is the process of inspiration. And so, yes, man was involved with that. But the true author of the word of God, the Bible, is God. Although he used human writers and even used their personalities. And so it's so amazing that God doesn't need our help, but yet and still he uses man. He even uses us to share the gospel with people. 
We know it is God who saves, but he, he uses us. He wants us to come along the ride with him and reaching people for Jesus. Letting people know that, hey, we're all sinners. We all need a savior. That savior is Jesus. This Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead. Three days later, he ascended back to the right hand of the father. We get to share that message because he allows us to partner with him. Just like he allowed these holy men to partner with him in writing down his holy word. And this isn't something new. When we talk about the inspiration of the New Testament, it isn't something new that, that the apostles, that the disciples were surprised by. It wasn't something that Jesus was surprised by when, when he saw that the New Testament was written. In fact, he gave them a heads up. For example, in, in John chapter 14, uh, verse 25, I mean, verse 26 It says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And notice this. He will bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And so it's like Jesus gave them a heads up that that this was going to happen, that the inspiration of the New Testament was going to take place. And it did. And once again, these men, they wrote it down. Now, as a byproduct of inspiration of the word of God being breathed out by God, a byproduct or a result of that is something we call inerrancy. So because this word is breathed out by him, it is from God. It is inerrant and inerrancy, by the way, means wholly true and without error. This Bible that we, that we hold, that we read, that we're talking about is without error. It is wholly true. Why? Because it's a byproduct of the fact that it is inspired by a holy and eternal God. And when we talk about uh, the Bible being without error, we're talking about the autographs. We're talking about the originals. And so the originals from the pen of the men that God used, because we know that some people who copied it maybe had some slips of the pen or whatever, but the originals without error. But we're going to get to how we overcome the slips of the pen that that we see in some of these manuscripts that we'll, like I say, get to later. However, that this inerrancy also applies to our Bibles today because even though in translation, maybe not all of the exact words come through from one language to another, that's hard to do when you go from one language to another because you have different rules of language, different sentence structures that you call syntax and you have different grammar rules in different languages but what came through 100 percent in various languages is the what we call the vox or the voice so the message comes through 100 percent so we have even though this is in english and not in the original language greek we still have 100 percent of the vox V-O-X, or what we call the message, the voice. It comes through 100%. And so we can be confident in that. And by the end of this lesson, I I want you to be even more confident in that. You see, but before, of course, the words of the New Testament were, were written down, you had the oral tradition. So in other words, the gospel message was, was spread orally. It wasn't written down immediately. 
took years and years and years before they finally wrote them down. And, and maybe it took them a while to write it down because they were maybe expecting Jesus to come back immediately. So that could be a reason of why it took so long for them to write it down. But they, they would spread the word of God, the gospel. They, they would spread about Jesus' ministry and what he did verbally, orally. And so they weren't written down immediately. And there are some people who think that, oh, because it wasn't written down immediately. As soon as Jesus ascended and went back to heaven and sat on the, at the right hand of the father. Oh, they can't be trusted because it wasn't written down immediately. Some people actually think that. But what they don't know is that ancient Jews and some of these points are on the screen. That ancient Jews were capable of memorizing large amounts of scripture first and foremost. In fact, it was, it was not uncommon for a Jew to have the entire Old Testament memorized by the age of 14. So, so why wouldn't they be able to remember what Jesus had said and did, especially since they hung out with him during, during his time of ministry here, the three, three and a half years of ministry. And I'm sure they heard certain lessons over and over. So, of course, they would have remembered Not only that, but it was transmitted orally in the open for the whole community to hear. So as it came from their mouths, other people, they were hearing it in the community. And I'm sure they too would share the same message over and over. And people had an opportunity to to memorize it. But but then too, what people uh, don't consider is like, how how can they remember all that? And it, it took, you know, at least 20 30 years after Jesus went back to heaven, after he ascended to to write it down. How can they remember all that? Well, first of all, we talked about the Holy Spirit bringing these things to their remembrance. And then um, the fact is when, when you think about some impactful things in your life, it's easier for you to remember. There's some of you who can remember stories from maybe when you were four years old, five years old, because they were really impactful. And so I'm sure there were some reasons that, that they would have been able to memorize them and as they shared them orally with people. But, but here's the other thing why they were able to memorize the words of Christ and things about the life of Christ, even before they wrote down the words, is that Jesus actually used some techniques that help people to remember. For example, he used parables. I mean, who can't remember stories? And Jesus would use that. He would bring stories into his teachings. And so he would use these earthly stories to teach about heavenly things, parables. And then he would use visuals or memorable images like the the speck in one person's eye and the plank in another person's eye. That's that's really a comical thing. So when people, you know, try to imagine, did Jesus laugh? Did did Jesus have a sense of humor? That would have been a humorous thing really to to look at. There's this person with a big plank in their eye and they're trying to help somebody with a little speck in their eye. And so he would use visuals and memorable images like that. And, and of course, he would repeat things, repeat lessons in various settings. And, and so, of course, they would remember. And then Jesus, of course, would, would give a sentence in similar form so that the passage would have some type of rhythm to it. And so one example of that is actually in Luke uh, chapter 11. Uh, I'm looking at verse 9. 
So in Luke chapter 11, verse 9, you see some of this rhythm that, that Jesus would have to some of his teaching. Like, for example, he would say, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. So you hear the rhythm in the teaching there. And so when Jesus used that type of teaching, used things like that, strategies like that, of course, that would help the disciples and those he were teaching to remember. And so it's not an impossible thing. When we think of the fact, oh, you know, the Gospels weren't written to... However many years later, 20, 30 years, whatever, later after the fact, it's not a big deal. Not, not as big of a deal as some people make it. And usually th- these are people who don't want to submit to God anyway. And then, of course, you come across people who have genuine answers. And so you want to you be able to help people. But then at a certain time, they went from the oral transmission. In other words, sharing the word orally, the gospels orally, verbally, and they put it into writing. And so I have another quote from Thyssen or Thyssen. It says, at first, oral accounts of his work by eyewitnesses filled the needs of the infant church. But as years passed, eyewitness accounts became few and insufficient. Now the demand was for authoritative written narratives. And in fulfillment of this demand, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John sent out their witness to Jesus. And so these writers of the New Testaments, they they wrote as eyewitnesses, or at least from firsthand information. And the language, of course, they use, you heard me say it before, and you may know this already, is Greek. It was actually the common Greek, the Koine Greek. And so it was the language of the common people during that time. And and they most likely wrote on a, a material called papyrus between 50 AD and 100 AD. And so that's a, like a general uh, time period some Bible scholars use of when the New Testament was completed. Once again, between 50 AD and 100 AD. And w- once again, written in Koine or the common Greek. And it was the universal language at that time. But as uh, we talk about the, the, the scriptures being written now, and it goes from oral transmission, people sharing it orally or verbally. Now it goes into writing. That brings us to the topic of canonization. And so the word canon in Greek, and we talked about this already, so this is a review for some. The word canon in Greek is still spelled canon, you know, you know, except with the K there, which can be translated measuring rule, measuring rod, rule, staff, or norm. And so we use the word canon to refer to the church's collection of books. It also can refer to the rule or the norm of the faith. For example, like in Galatians 6.16, it can refer to that. And so when you think about the Old Testament, because we want to think about how long it took for the entire Bible to be written, So now the Old Testament, going back into the previous study, it was written over a period of about a thousand years from about 1400 B.C. through 400 B.C. Then, of course, in our English Bibles, it ends with Malachi. And then you had these 400 silent years. And so there was no new inspired scripture 
for about, a, for about 400 years. But that didn't mean that God wasn't working. For God was still working in what people call those silent years, those 400 silent years after the Old Testament was completed. And so during those 400 silent years that we call silent years, God was putting things in place. Of course, you have certain roads in place now. And those roads, of course, would eventually allow the apostles and the other disciples of Christ to, to travel more easily to share the gospel. And then the world was also being, paired, being prepared for the coming of Jesus is that and that now there was a universal language, which at that time was Greek. And the, and the Greek language actually fit perfectly with evangelism. And that's because Greek is more of an intellectual language and it has technical precision. You know, even with the different types of, of love, you know, the agape love, storge and so forth, phileo. You know, so there's, there's this technical precision. So a, a great language to use in order to share the gospel in a precise way. And so it would make theological truths more clear. And so God was still working things out. Universal language. There's more roles. Things falling into place for his son to come. And then the New Testament. After those 400 silent years. That, that began to be written just after the time of Christ. Up until the end of the first century. The book of Revelation is the last um, scripture. The last book of the Bible that was written that is inspired. However, the, the New Testament wasn't officially accepted into, into canon about, until about the, I will say, fourth century. So the late 300s AD when it was officially accepted. But it doesn't mean that there, was, there wasn't anything new or anything. It was just that that's when it was just confirmed because Christians accepted the writings of the apostles right away. So Christians right away knew, the early Christians right away, they, they knew which scriptures were inspired by God. They had criteria, and we're going to go over those criteria. But when it became official, set in stone, was about in the fourth century. And so what you have here, some people will mention, oh, the councils did this. Councils, no, the councils did not determine they didn't determine which books were from God and which ones were, from not, were not from God. What, what they did was that they discovered what the church had already recognized as the canon for the New Testament. So they just confirmed what the church, the early church already knew and believed and received. They just put a stamp on it. And so even early on in the church, the letters in the Bible that we read today, they, they were circulated in the churches. And we can read some examples of it. For example, early on, the church knew. Colossians 4.16 says, Now when this epistle, when this letter is read among you, see that it is read also to the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Of course, we don't have the letter today that was um, written you know, from Laodicea or whatever. But what we have here is what God saw fit that we needed. 
And so you had Colossians 4.16. So you saw that letters were already in circulation. The church already knew what was of God. And so once again, some of these councils didn't determine what belonged, what did not. They just recognized what the church saw as scriptures. And then you have 1 Thessalonians 5.27. I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the holy brethren. Send circulation early on. And so these New Testament accounts of Jesus, they, they begin to be circulated within the lifetimes of those who were alive at the time of his life. And so there were some people who saw, for example, the resurrection of, of Christ or the resurrected Christ. Because remember, at one point he appeared to 500 uh, brethren at one time. And at the time of 1 Corinthians, at least or more than 250 of them were still alive. And so if there were any writings in circulation that weren't true, some of those 250 plus would have said, no, that's not true. That doesn't belong. First Corinthians 15, 6, it says, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. And notice he says, of whom the greater part remained to the present. So still more than 250 were still alive. As even 1 Corinthians was being written, as many of the, Christ, uh, of the letters were being passed around, as the gospels were even being shared orally, some of these people would have been able to say, hey, that didn't happen like that. That's not true. That's not what was said. That's not what he did. So this was taking place early on in Christianity. And so what we have in our, in our Bibles, in the New Testament canon, we notice that is grouped as follows. We have five books of history, Matthew through the book of Acts. We have 21 books of doctrine, Romans through Jude. And then we have one book of prophecy in the New Testament, and that's the book of Revelation. And so you see the 27 that we have. And so this is our canon, the collection that, that belongs in the Bible inspired by God. And so here are the criteria um, that led to the early church to recognize the New Testament, the New Testament as canonical. And so these are what Bible, Bible scholars would call the, the seven P's of canonicity. And so as we look at these seven P's of canonicity, it's going to help us to understand the reason um, some so-called books and gospels were left out while others were left in. And so you had the prophetic principle. So that's the first P. That's the first criterion. So in other words, does the book as a whole claim to be the word of God? So that's one cri criterion. Another one is the patristic principle. In other words, did the early leaders accept it immediately? The early leaders, the church fathers, those who, who followed pretty much on the heels of the apostles, did they accept it immediately? Yes, they did. We, we talked about that. And then the third P is the power principle. In other words, do the scriptures have the power to change lives? Yes, they do. We saw the apostle Paul's life change. You saw the apostle Peter's life. His life was changed. You saw John. The apostle John, his life was changed because at one point he wanted to call down lightning on some people who rejected Jesus. 
Jesus says, wait, you don't know what spirit you're of. But then you read some of John's letters. All he's talking about is love, 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 love. That's, that's a heart change through the power of the scriptures. And then the fourth P, which is the fourth criteria of, of how the early church recognized the New Testament as canonical. The fourth P is the people of God. Did the early common citizen take the writings as scripture? And we know they did. We already talked about that. And so it was accepted very early. I mean, even in the Talmud, Gamaliel quoted Matthew 25. The statement was made before 70 AD. We also found like ossuaries, these little burial boxes. We'll actually get to see one of them tonight. Um, and so they have some scriptures on them. The, and actually the early church they also sang hymns with scriptures in them and so the people of god they they accepted the writings as scriptures and then the fifth p is past truth principle in other words does it measure up to what we know to be true about the old testament or does it contradict the old testament the sixth p is the petrine principle in other words you know, it's relating to or characteristic of the apostle Peter of what happened there. So did the early apostles make any reference to scripture being the word of God? Like Peter did, for example. That's why it's called the, the Petrine principle. So Peter recognized Paul's writing as scripture, just to give an example. And then the seventh P is the Pauline principle. In other words, does Paul make any reference to the early books as being scripture? Yes, he did. He actually quoted from Luke. As well as, you know, Deuteronomy, I believe is chapter 25 and in first Timothy 518. So early on. They, they, they recognize what was scripture, what was of God, what was not of God. But then that that makes us question why other books or gospels were not accepted into the new testament canon well if you follow those seven p's you kind of get an idea of why some of these so-called gospels or um pseudepigrapha apocryphal books were were left out well that's because number one they presented a different description of the nature of jesus that was something that was different from the four gospels that were known to be the word of god they also didn't include eyewitness testimony about jesus not only that, but, but some of those writings, those so-called gospels that weren't accepted, they were written late. And therefore, they couldn't be, have been written by who they claimed to be written by. They were written so late, hundreds of years after a person died. And then there's some false miracle claims about Jesus' childhood. There's false claims about biblical events, many false teachings. And not only that, but it was rejected by the early church fathers. And so that's why some of these other so-called gospels or pseudepigrapha or whatever were not added into the canon of scripture, the collection of scriptures we have now in the New Testament. And so when we talk about canonicity, you know, Geisler and Nix was quoted by McDowell and it says that canonicity is determined or fixed authoritatively by God, but it is merely discovered by man so god sets the canon man just discovers what god inspired and so that leads us to talk about 
Now that we have the canon set, the canon of scripture set in the New Testament. Now we're going to talk a little bit about transmission, about copying these texts, these, these biblical texts in the New Testament that were written in Greek. And so there was a need for transmission. Now, there was a need to copy the scriptures now. Why? Because a lot of the scriptures, the originals were written on papyrus, a a type of plant. So they dried out or whatever, and and it was withering away. And so they would need to copy it. They didn't have the printing press at that time. So they had to copy it by hand to make sure that generations that came after would be able to read the same word that they read during that time. And so when we talk about transmission, it actually refers to the process of copying the biblical text into the same language. So Greek to Greek. Okay, so maybe from papyrus into now you're using animal skins. And so there was a need for them to be copied at this point. And so now that they're beginning to be copied into, you know, from Greek into Greek in order to preserve Um, what was written in the originals, now you begin to see more manuscripts. And manuscripts just means that these are just, they're just handwritten, okay? They didn't have typewriters. They didn't have computers. They were handwritten, so they called manuscripts prior to the printing press. And so now we begin to see more manuscripts. More copies are being made. And a lot of these New Testament manuscripts, they were being copied by Christians, who valued the scriptures, they took it seriously. They knew not to add nor take away from the scriptures. So they tried really hard to not do what what displeased God when copying these scriptures. And there are pretty much four different periods of transmission. You have from AD 100 to 300. And so during this time period, you're not going to find as many manuscripts. You're not going to find as many copies during this time period. But then in the second period from A.D. 300 to 500, you're going to see a bunch of New Testament manuscripts now. And that's because one reason is that uh, the emperor Constantine made Christianity legal. So now there's more. There's this explosion of manuscripts. And so these scriptures are now written on vellum or or in parchment, which are pretty much animal skin. So the third period is from 8,500 to 1,000. And so now you have monks. They're copying scriptures in monasteries. And the church is growing now. And so as more and more um, copies are being made, you start to see the, the quality of the copies go down. Because they're, they're going too fast, some of them. And, and some of them, they, you know, will get tired. And they would keep copying instead of resting. So it's not a big deal because we have a bunch of scriptures, a lot of texts, manuscripts to compare to see what belonged, what didn't belong and so forth. And then the fourth period is from AD 1000 to 1400. And the reason we stop at 1400 when it comes to the handwritten manuscripts is because in the 1400s, that's when the printing press was created. So you're not going to see too many um, manuscripts, you know, after that time period. There was no need to hand copy anymore. And so you have, um, you have these copies that, have, that would have these capital Greek letters. So you, the, the earlier text, Greek text, it was all capitals pretty much. You call those unseals. Unseals. And so, and so that's how you could tell. That would give you a clue if a Greek text was early. 
But then later on, you start to see the writing get smaller and more in cursive. Those are called minuscules. Those are the later texts. And so and from AD 1000 to 1400, you see this explosion of copies. And then you start to see the majority of written manuscripts are now being written in smaller letters and in cursive instead of in all caps with no spaces. And so we, we move from there to from the transmission to now we, we want to prove, okay, it's been copied. They have to be copied because the material doesn't last forever. And so we, we need to do some tests to prove that the Bible we have is reliable. And specifically, we're talking about the New Testament. We already shown that about the Old Testament. And so there's three tests that people can do to test the reliability of the New Testament. They could do these, uh, this bibliographical test. And so it'll look at the amount of manuscripts and the quality of manuscripts and the dating of the manuscripts. And then there's this internal test. And so the internal test directs his intention inside the Bible to, to see if there's certain characteristics that either affirm or incriminate it. And so in other words, the internal test looks at what the Bible says about itself. And then there's the external test test to in order to test the reliability or the trustworthiness of the new testament and and so when you use this external test you're you're looking at evidence that's outside the bible to show that it's reliable like non-christian witnesses or uh, you're looking at archaeology things like that and so just talking about the bibliographical test so we're going to start there with the bibliographical test to show that the New Testament is trustworthy, is reliable. And so what we have is a great quantity. We have many, um, we have many manuscripts. I'm just going to put it out there. And, and actually, here are some numbers. We have nearly 6,000, so 5,800 plus. And the number is going to fluctuate depending on um, which Bible scholar you talk to. But we have... Plenty of Greek manuscripts, of copies of the biblical text of the New Testament. And not all of them contain the entire New Testament, by the way. Some of them are just fragments or parts of it. Not only that, but we have 19,000 plus non-Greek New Testament manuscripts. So these will be early translations like Latin and Syriac and Coptic and so forth and Gothic and Arabic, Ethiopian. And so now you have translations you can pull from. And the translation, by the way, is the process by which the words, the meaning, and, and the phrases are transferred from one language to another. And so you have 19,000 plus of them. And so now, not only do you have the Greek manuscripts, the original language, not only do you have those copies, now you have this, the translations. And when you add them together, you have about 25,000 plus manuscripts in order to see what the originals look like. And so we can see that and we're blessed with that as Christians. And so therefore, in your Bibles, the, those who publish it, they can put things in the margins that said, okay, this group of manuscripts don't have this word, this group does. And then in some of the text, your biblical text, as you're reading it, you'll see some things in italics, meaning that sometimes the, you know, whoever, sometimes they, they put it there in order to clarify a statement and so forth, and, but it, not necessarily um, in the original text, but it doesn't change really any meaning. 
And so you have all of this, 25,000 plus translations plus the Greek manuscripts, the original language. And so the New Testament has more manuscript support in terms of how many, in terms of quantity than any other ancient book in history. But it's funny because more people doubt this than any other ancient historical books. So what we have with the Bible, as we see here, is that people copied it early. They copied it accurately and they copied it often. And so the quality of the manuscripts, as we talk about that, some of the manuscripts, they do reveal mistakes or mistakes that some copyists made. But then you have the other manuscripts that you compare it to and say, okay, this is what they meant. So all of these have this and this one misspelled it. Okay, so we know what it says. And so that's the blessing of of having multiple manuscripts. And it could be due to maybe a slip of the pen. Maybe they accidentally do something. I mean, you try to copy the whole Bible by yourself and see how many times you're going to mess up. Not that you're intending to, but, but the thing is, out of all of you in this room, if you copy just one of the Gospels, even if one person misspells a word, you'll be able to look at the rest of everybody else's copies and say, okay, this is what they meant. Okay, same thing here. So it's reliable. In fact, one man, Sir Frederick Kenyon, stated, the number of manuscripts of the New Testament, of early translations from it, and of quotations in it, And of quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church is so large that it is practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in some one or other of these ancient authorities. This can be said of no other ancient book in the world. Amen. So not only that, but we have, of course, the the early dates of the manuscripts. And so. When you look at the earliest or, or the remaining copies that we have, or at least a partial copy um, of the text that we have, of a manuscript that we have, if we compare that with when the originals were written, um, it would have the least time gap between that copy and the original than any other historical document. And so the earliest document or the earliest manuscript of a New Testament book is, is what you're looking at there. And so this is called, um, this is called the John Ryland's fragment. And so it contains John 18 verses 31 through 33 and also verses 37 and 38. And so this was, this dates between 117 and 138 or earlier. And so this is the earliest manuscript that we have. And then there's a, as far as whole book, a, a whole book of the New Testament is concerned, we have the Codex Sinaiticus, Sinaiticus. And so it contains the entire Greek New Testament and about half the Old Testament. And so you would call this a codex because it's in a book form. It's not in a scroll form. And so this is the oldest surviving uh, New Testament we have complete new testament that we have and it is only 300 years removed from the time of christ that that's i mean a complete completed new testament 
Then you have this. You have the Codex Vaticanus. So this is dated between AD 325 and AD 350, and it contains most of the New Testament. And so it's missing some parts of the New Testament, but it contains most of it. As well as, you know, it has parts of the Old Testament and fortunately has, you know, parts of the Apocrypha in that one, in the Codex Vaticanus. And so you can look at these documents and things like that. You can see, you can see that the closeness in time between the originals and the copies, including the fragments from the second and third centuries, that's important. That's important because it, it can take one to three generations for myth to begin to creep into a text. But they were copied so much. Speaking of the New Testament, there was copied so much and, and at a, you know, and as close to the original time period as possible than any other historical document that it didn't give time for a myth to develop. And so we could be happy about that. But compare Compare what we saw about the Bible to another ancient source. And I'm just going to look at one. Homer. He's the author. The document is the Iliad. The date of the original is 800 BC. The earliest copy of that is 400 BC. And so the time gap of their earliest copy from the original is 400 years. And... When you talk about historical sources like this, other historical sources or ancient sources of, of writings other than the Bible, you know, no other one has a time gap less than, you know, 100 to 200 years. But when you talk about the Bible, the earliest manuscript of a Bible, a copy of a Bible manuscript, at least a partial, is only 30 years from the, gener- from the uh, original. 30 to 100 years from the original for our New Testament. And so you can, you know, look at that website at the bottom. You can check it out yourself. You know, it's all out there for us to see. But not only do you have the manuscripts in Greek, which is the original language, not only do you have the translations that we can use to, to say, okay, do we have what's really in the originals in the New Testament? Not only do you have that, but then you have quotations from the church fathers, the, the, the leaders who came after the apostles. In fact, you have over 36,000 quotes of the New Testaments from these church fathers. And in fact, there's something amazing up there and it's on the screen. They quoted, they quoted the New Testament so much that if you didn't have the Greek manuscripts, if you didn't have the 19,000 plus translations, guess what? You would still be able to put the entire New Testament together just from what the church fathers quoted, except for maybe 11 verses. And so every New Testament book was quoted by them except for 2 John and Jude. It's not, and it's probably because they didn't, you know, maybe they, they, they didn't have a context to use it. Not that they rejected it. And so like people like Clement of Rome and Ignatius and Polycarp. Polycarp, by the way, was an apostle of, I'm, I'm sorry, he was a disciple of the apostle John. He quoted it. They quoted scriptures a lot. And, and, and here's the thing. When you talk about the scriptures being copied. It was copied with 99 plus percent accuracy. 
And so when the manuscripts were compared to each other, they agreed 99 plus percent of the time. And you had these little minor differences, different spellings or numbers or whatever, but they did not affect any Christian doctrine. You have the same Jesus, the same way to salvation, the same God, so forth. So now you move from the um, bibliographical text or test to see that the New Testament is reliable. You move to now the internal test. And one thing we can look at as we look at the Bible internally, what it says about itself is that we have the evidence of eyewitnesses. So eyewitnesses wrote it down. And if they weren't eyewitnesses, they were connected to someone who was an eyewitness. For example, Matthew, John, and Peter, they were disciples of Jesus and they were eyewitnesses. You know, Mark wasn't one of the original uh, apostles, but he was an interpreter of Peter. And so he will have gotten the information from Peter to write down in the gospel of Mark. And then Luke wasn't an original, wasn't an original apostle, but he was a, a friend of Paul. He hung out with the apostle Paul. And then you have Paul who received information directly from the Lord. Galatians chapter 1 verses 11 through 17. And then not only that, but James and Jude were half brothers of Christ and leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And so not only as we look at it internally and do this internal test, not only do we have evidence from these eyewitnesses, but we have scriptures to show how the writers view their own writings. You know, 1 Corinthians 14, 37. You know, Apostle Paul knew that he was writing to them the commandments of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. You know, talking about you receive the word of the Lord, which you heard from us. They knew they were sharing the word of the Lord. Here's another set. 1 Corinthians 7, 40. I think I also have the spirit of God. So he knew that the Holy Spirit was giving them the inspired word. 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, one of my favorite. Peter equates Paul's writing with scriptures. Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. So he puts Paul's writing up there with the rest of the scriptures. So this is how they view their writings. Here it is again. 1 Timothy 5.18. Paul is actually quoting from Luke. He's quoting from Luke uh, chapter 10 verse 7. And also Deuteronomy 25.4. Then in Jude verses 17-18. Jude is quoting from Peter. And you can reference 2 Peter 3 uh, verses 2 and 3. But here's another internal test to show that the Bible, the New Testament is reliable. Because remember some controversies came up that Jesus necessarily didn't touch on. Well, instead of going back and putting words in Jesus' mouth, they left it alone. Why? Because that that's not, that wasn't inspired. That wasn't the inspired word that they wrote down at the time. So they didn't go back and try to fix anything. And then there's some counterproductive features in the Gospels. They allowed themselves to be included in the story. Oh, they ran away in Jesus' most time of need. Then you have the evidence of prophecy. So all of this is internal evidence. 
that we can look at and see that the New Testament is reliable. Then, of course, we see that the Bible lacks the mythological tone. And then you have to perform miracles and so forth. You have all of this. And then you have the external test. See, the external test looks outside the Bible to confirm the contents of Scripture. For example, it looks at archaeology, which is the study of ancient things. It looks at history. And it strengthens the case for the reliability of the Bible. You know, you have all, we have all of this archaeological evidence. There has been no archaeological evidence that has overturned anything in the Bible. There's over 25,000 archaeological discoveries. And, and here's one, Capernaum. So that's been discovered. Not only that, but over, over 30 people in the New Testament have been confirmed. One of them is James, the brother of Jesus. This is his ossuary. Pontius Pilate inscription. Yes, he was a real person. There's over 60 confirmed historical details in the Gospel of John. 80 confirmed historical details in the book of Acts. And so Nelson Gluek, an archaeologist, he says, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. He says that scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And so the validity of the Bible or the biblical history, because it's true in its historical things, that means it's going to be true in its spiritual things. And then we have non-Christian testimony to Christ. You can learn a lot just by, uh, learn, uh, learn a lot about Jesus just by what non-Christians say about him. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified on the eve of Passover, so forth. Darkness and earthquake. So you learn all of this about Jesus from different sources like Josephus and, you know, Pliny the Younger, Thales, Lucian, Phlegon. Not even Christians, but what they said, you can see, okay, Jesus, he really lived and did what he did. Not only that, but the Bible isn't even a science book, but what it says about science is true. Why? Because it's the word of God. In the scriptures, we see that creation is made of particles that we can't see. In the scriptures, we see that the universe had a beginning. They know it had a beginning because scientists can see that the universe is expanding. If it's expanding, that means it had a, a, a point that it's expanding from. So in other words, if it's expanding, that means you can press rewind hypothetically and it'll go back to the point it started from. The universe had a beginning. The scriptures already said that. God has created all mankind from one blood. The scriptures Already said that. But today, researchers have discovered that we all have descended from one gene pool. As Matt takes the stage. And so you see in all of this evidence that shows that the New Testament that we have, that we read is reliable. 
And so as we see that the Bible is trustworthy in earthly matters, like I said, you can trust it in spiritual matters. What it says about history, what it says about science is true. Archaeology supports it. So why not trust it when it talks about spiritual things, when it talks about heaven, when it talks about hell, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him, that's true as well. And so if the Bible's true, which it is, we need to obey what the word of God says. Amen? Amen. And guess what? Obedience will bring success and blessings. We also need to spend time learning it. The more we learn it, the more we learn his word, the more we'll learn about the God we serve. And as you go through life, my hope is after this series that we're wrapping up on the reliability or of the scriptures here. As you go through life, be, be confident that, that what you're sharing is the word of God. What you believe is the word of God. And all types of topics. The world may not like it. People may not like your answers that you give from the word of God. But be confident that this is what God gave to man. You can trust it. You can share it. And you need to live by it. I need to live by the word of God. Not only that, but we need to share it. Because it is in the word of God is where we find the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to he who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. There's power in this word because it comes from a powerful God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have put skilled people in the body of Christ on this earth to discover all these things. And we're learning, Lord. And I just pray that you'll equip us to go out, be confident that we have your word, that we have the truth. Be confident, Lord, when people ask those tough questions. That, that, Lord, we have the answers. Because it's in your word. And I pray, Lord, that as we leave this place, but not your presence. That you would use us in a mighty way this week that you would bless us and help us to be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.